Well, good morning again. Thank you all for making it out here this morning. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Matthew. As you uh, know, we've been going through Matthew week after week, and we come this morning to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, uh, through chapter 11, verse 1. So Matthew 10, 16 through 11, 1 is our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, before I go ahead and read that, uh, please pray with me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you uh, for the privilege that it is to come and to, to receive from you, and that's what we want to do right now. We want to receive from you, Father. We want uh, you to speak to our hearts by your spirit uh, through your word, and we pray that you would do that, Father. We pray that you would come and be active uh, in our midst. and. I just pray that you would give me the words to say and give all of us ears to hear in a way that will bring glory to your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his, ma his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household." Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Well, the reason I don't share the gospel as much as I ought, besides being selfish and self-reliant and stingy with my time, is because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of not knowing what to say. I'm afraid of of looking dumb, uh, not because I think the gospel is dumb, but because I'm afraid the way I present it will be. I'm afraid of what people will think. Fear hinders God's mission of grace. Uh, Jesus is here sending out his disciples on their first mission. And Jesus knows that there are plenty of reasons to fear. So he prepares them and us beforehand. So the mission of God will not be hindered by our fear. You can see the outline in your bulletin there. It's just three things we're going to look at. This cosmic conflict over commitment, um, some common responses to that, and then being conformed to Christ's image in the midst of that. So first we'll look at this cosmic conflict over commitment. There, there is a conflict going on, and it's a lot bigger than we often think of it. Jesus introduces us to this in chapter 10, verse 16, when he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Then he goes on in verses 17 and 18 to say, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Then verses 21 and 22, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This conflict includes legal battles, right? Being dragged before governors and kings. It involves a name-calling and slander. Verse 25, uh, Jesus says, it, uh, If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It involves family strife, strife as we've read about, even martyrdom and death. This conflict really began in the Garden of Eden. The day that Satan first crept into the Garden to subvert God's rule, the conflict began, and then God established it as ongoing in Genesis 3.15, which we heard earlier, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God is saying that this conflict is going to be ongoing. There will be ongoing enmity. God is promising an ongoing conflict in the human family between those who submit to God's purposes and those who oppose them. And this conflict pokes itself through in various ways at various times, right? Sometimes it looks like physical persecution. We heard a little bit about that uh, during the prayer this morning, that, that in many places in the world there is ongoing physical persecution, even martyrdom for the name of Jesus, Sometimes the conflict is is purely spiritual, right? Even demonic, oppression of one kind or another. Sometimes in in the world, uh, the world might belittle Christians as unintellectual or backward in our culture. Uh, Sometimes there's intellectual sparring matches, right, in the public arena. Sometimes there is simply social rejection. 
In our country, of course, it's more likely to take the form of the, the latter four things. And the question is, are, are we ready even to face that level of persecution, that level of conflict? Are we ready? Are we willing? Are we willing to be known as, as those people who believe the Bible or those people who say Jesus is the only way? As we proclaim Jesus as king, people often won't like that. People don't want to bow their knee to anyone. They don't want to give up their autonomy. And make no mistake, right, it is, it is just this point that is the point of contention. Jesus says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. If they called him names, how much more us who belong to him, Jesus says. So the central point at issue, right, is, is really acknowledging Jesus. All of Matthew's gospel up to this point has been teaching us one main thing, that Jesus is the king, that he is the authority. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king himself has come. The one who has authority has arrived. But we like our autonomy, right? We like our rules. We like our ways, uh, Paul Tripp calls us self-rule junkies. Right? That's what we, we want to we rule our own lives. And to hear that there is one who demands our total allegiance gets under our skin. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me I have to do something, unless it's clear from the Bible, and sadly, even then sometimes, I get downright indignant. Right? I, I don't want to be told by anyone that I have to do something. You can make a suggestion, that's great, but don't tell me I have to. Right? We like our autonomy, and no king right, is going to come and take that away, we think. This is one of the reasons that the good news of Jesus produces such hostility. I mean, think about it. You would think that a message of God's love for the lost and dying and the hope of the coming renewal of all things through Jesus, you would think that would be a welcome message in a broken world but not when it takes away my right to do whatever I want. Commitment to Christ brings conflict. It brings persecution. And if there's no persecution whatsoever, either it means the world has accepted Jesus' claim to be Lord, or the church does not proclaim it. Jesus and his authority are the fundamental point of conflict, of contention. Now, we could qualify that and say that certainly there are times when God is pleased to give his church rest, uh, but that's not the norm. It's not the norm throughout history, uh, and it's not the norm in the world today. Jesus promised, in the world, you will have trouble. And our commitment to Jesus is the center of that cosmic conflict. And this commitment is divisive. I mean, look at verses 34 to 36. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. See, Jesus says his coming will be divisive. There's no question about it. It will be. It's going to divide father from son and mother from daughter and mother-in-law from daughter-in-law over this issue of commitment to Jesus, over Jesus' authority, over allegiance to the king. 
Commitment to Jesus is divisive because Jesus calls for total commitment. Look at verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, our ultimate loyalty must be to Jesus alone. There's no other loyalty, no other love that should rival our loyalty and love for Jesus. And so this is a commitment that divides parent from child, child from parent, even us from ourselves. Look at verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus calls for commitment to him to be greater even than our commitment to our own good. He calls us to take up our cross, which was an instrument of execution and death. He calls us to lose our lives for his sake. In order for this to happen, of course, I need to put to death. I need to die to myself, put to death my desires, my loves, my needs, my wants, which is why Jesus says, take up your cross. Put yourself to death. Put your desires to death so that you can follow me, he's saying. And Jesus says, whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake in this way will find it. Because real life, life as it was meant to be, is found in recognizing that we're not the center of the universe, but Jesus is. And so the question, right, that, that, that is put to us is where does my ultimate allegiance lie? Am I living as if I'm the center of my daily life? Do I rule? Do I call the shots? Or am I bowing my knee to King Jesus? Jesus is calling for a radical commitment to himself. And no wonder it produces such strong reactions. Jesus is saying, I must be more important to you than anything, even more important than family, even more important than yourself. And you can see how Jesus' claim to our allegiance challenges two sides of our contemporary cultural rhetoric, right? I mean, Jesus' claim challenges the idea that the highest value is individual human rights, And Jesus' claim challenges the the rhetoric of the centrality of family values. Jesus says, don't value yourself above all else. And don't value your family above all else. Value me. And hence, the conflict begins. Now, it's important to realize that this conflict is over our commitment to Jesus, right? There are lots of other reasons for conflict. Sometimes Christians can be jerks. Sometimes we sin against people. Uh, Sometimes we make mistakes and then we try to cover them up and hide them rather than confess them and say that we're sorry. Sometimes we talk about our commitment to Jesus, but we do it arrogantly or demeaningly. Uh, The conflict that those things bring is not the conflict that Jesus is talking about here. The conflict Jesus is speaking of in these verses, the persecution that they will face, is over allegiance to King Jesus, pure and simple. Now, there are lots of ways that we respond to conflict. And I'm going to summarize these under three headings, three different ways that we respond to this conflict in the world. And we see them in in different ways in the passage, or at least we see Jesus respond to them in different ways in this passage. The three responses, I'll I'll tell them to you first. The three responses are, are the response of the deceived, the response of the combative, and the response of the fearful. So deceived, deceived, combative, and fearful. 
See, there are some, whether through the, the culture's rhetoric of tolerance or because of our own desire for a false peace, that, that we've been deceived. We can begin to think that there's no real conflict in the world, right? I mean, Christianity fits just fine in with this culture. All this talk of battles and wars in Christianity, it's unnecessary, maybe even ugly, right? And, and, and we can become kind of idealistic about this, right? We want everyone just to get along, right? There's no reason why Christians shouldn't be able to fit just fine into this world. And so we smooth over the claims uh, of Christ to our total allegiance, and we smooth over the rejection of society. We've learned to kind of spin things so that Christianity and the world fit together like hand in glove. We only ever speak into the culture when the Bible supports the cultural position, and we keep quiet when the conflict would come to the surface. And to these people, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus sends us into conflict. He knows it. Jesus says, Be wise, in verse 16. Beware, in verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. The conflict is real. Jesus is preparing his disciples for this. And some who ignore this warning end up surprised, right? We get caught off guard. Uh, where did this come from, right? Why don't people like us? Why, why are we under such attack? Maybe we even get bitter, uh, bitter at the world for what we see as an unwarranted and unexpected attack or bitter at God for allowing it. And so Jesus warns a disciple is not above his teacher. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. And Jesus elsewhere compares these uh, kind of people to seed that is sown on rocky ground, which spring up quick, but is destroyed by the heat of the sun because there's not much root. When he explains that parable, he says, there are many who receive the message of Christianity with joy, but quickly give up when trouble or persecution comes because they are surprised, right? They're surprised at the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so they back down and they give up their joy. Now, you may be going through a time of, of relative calm and ease, right? Your relationships with people around you are good. There's no persecution, especially in our country. We don't face sort of the, 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 the largest forms of that. Well, praise God. Praise God for that peace. Praise God for that time of comfort. But don't be surprised when persecution or difficulty comes. You pray for those. Pray for those who are facing the, the, the more serious forms of persecution throughout the world. Pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries, right, who face, uh, who face serious persecution, jail, or even death. Of course, there is a reason that the church throughout history is called the church militant. That's what we call it. Of course, that brings us to the second common response to cosmic conflict, which is being combative. You know, some people love the metaphors of battle in Scripture, and they're eager to talk about so-called culture wars, right? They're eager to look at life in an us versus them categories. They're eager to fight and be quarrelsome and hot-tempered. There are those who, as soon as someone mentions things like evolution or abortion or tolerance, they're ready to jump down your throat. They're abrasive and sometimes irritating and persistent. But Jesus actually has a word for them as well in this passage. It's an interesting uh, verse, verse 23 where Jesus says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. 
I think that's kind of an interesting uh, word that Jesus gives. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. I mean, there are some who would think that Jesus would be dishonored if you run from a fight, right? You should never run from a fight, never back down. And Jesus says, if you're being persecuted, move on to the next town. Uh, why would he say that? Well, one commentator tells us this. He says, Jesus is teaching us not to persist unnecessarily in a situation of persecution, He goes on, he says, when a disciple finds one place implacably hostile, it is not his function to continue to offer himself for maltreatment and death. Needlessly to court martyrdom is not the Christian way, he says. And these are similar to Jesus' words about not throwing your pearls before swine, or if someone will not receive you, to leave that house or that town and move on. You don't have to get caught up in in a conflict that will only end in your death or may actually make the cause of Christianity look foolish. There's a proverb that says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will become like him. You see, there's a point at which the the conflict is useless. It's not going to benefit Christianity to continue in certain kinds of arguments and conflicts. It's not going to benefit the name of Jesus. So there are times to move on. We are called to proclaim a message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has brought the renewal of all things, beginning with his resurrection, the pouring out of his spirit. He's going to bring that to fulfillment at his return. When that message is rejected or, or people respond with hostility, we should feel free to move on, Jesus says. There are other people who need to hear this message. You don't need to stay and fight. Too many of us are too eager to fight and to argue rather than to proclaim and then let Jesus do his work in people's hearts. Now then there, there are, there's a third group of people, right? There are those of us who have the opposite problem. We're not eager to fight, but we're afraid, right? There are those who are fearful, They're afraid of saying the wrong things, afraid of upsetting the apple cart, right? Afraid of rejection, afraid of persecution, afraid of losing friends, afraid of losing jobs, right? We're fearful. And being fearful often means being unproductive in our faith because we're too afraid to do anything. We're too afraid to say anything. We're too afraid to follow Jesus into dangerous places. And we have lots of good reasons why it's not a good time to say anything. Depending on the strength of our fear, of course, it it may actually move us from being terrified as Christians to abandoning Christianity altogether, from being fearful to being defeated, because it's easy to give up and to give in, to cave to to modern culture, culture, to capitulate, right, to back down, because the cost is too high or the resistance is too strong. There's a battle over morality and a battle over truth that's just too relentless, And it's easier to acquiesce, right? It's easier to surrender. It's hard to persevere in what we believe to be true when the world is often set against us. Well, Jesus recognizes our propensity to fear more than anything in this passage, and he says a number of things about it. The first thing he says, I really think the first words speak to this. He says, behold, I am sending you. Behold, I am sending you. See, fear often stops us from going. It stops us from talking, stops us from engaging people about the gospel. We don't want to get hurt or or don't know what to say, so we we just don't go. We just don't say anything at all. 
And Jesus says, I am sending you. You will bear witness for my sake, he says. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Acknowledge me before men. As dangerous as it might be in times and places, or as scary as it might be, Jesus has given us this mission to proclaim the kingdom, to tell people about the world renewal that Jesus has purchased through his death and resurrection. And as scary as it is, right, our mission to proclaim the kingdom is from Jesus. And as we look through this passage, we see Jesus saying another thing again and again. He repeatedly says, do not fear. Do not be anxious. Do not fear. Have no fear of them. Now, when I have the opportunity to speak to to someone uh, about Jesus, I'm often afraid. How can we have no fear, right? How can we not fear? Well, there are a couple things in this passage that that help us. Um, We're to rely on the Spirit, we're to trust in our Father, and we're to remember Jesus' work. First, we're to rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit who speaks through us. Look at verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Jesus says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus envisions a time when his disciples will be brought before kings and rulers. And our temptation, my temptation when put on the spot, is to worry about what to say. Right? I know what I know and what I don't know. I know my ability or lack thereof to think on the spot, and so I'm afraid of what to say. I'm anxious in Jesus' words. And Jesus says, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, don't be ready. And he doesn't say, don't consider beforehand. And he doesn't say, don't study well. And he, but he does say, don't be anxious. Why, should, why, why would we be anxious? Why why are we anxious? Well, we're anxious because if you measure your possibilities of success or failure uh, by measuring your own abilities and strengths, you're almost always will crumble under the pressure, right? You say, okay, here's the opportunity. Here's my ability. It, It doesn't add up. We realize that we don't have what it takes. And Jesus says, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, uh, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Right? Because it's, it's not, Jesus says, it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, the problem is not that your ability is so small. That's, that's never the problem. The, the problem is that, you, that you're relying on your ability and not on God's spirit. Right? We, we look at the world, we look at the opportunities, and we're afraid because we think, I just, I don't know what to say. I, I don't, I, I'm not able to, to speak well about this topic. I'm, 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 not, I'm not able to speak into this. These people are a lot smarter than I am, whatever it is, right? We have all these reasons that we can't do it. But Jesus says, don't worry, right? It's, it's not you who speak. It's, it's the spirit of your father speaking through you. The problem is we rely on our ability and not on God's spirit, We trust in our ability, or lack thereof, and not on God's Spirit, and so we are afraid. As long as we rely on our own ability, we will live in fear. But once we learn to rely on God's Spirit, to trust that God is at work in and through us in the moment, that He's working, only when we live in that knowledge will we be free from fear. God is with us, and Jesus is with us. Even to the end of the age, He promises, Behold, I am with you always, He says. 
do not fear. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God is with you. That's that's the first antidote to fear in in pursuing Christ's mission. It's, It's relying on the Spirit. God's Spirit is at work. I can trust him. The second antidote is trusting our Father who values us. Verses 28 to 31, which are some of my favorite verses, say this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." I actually think this passage is often misunderstood. First, there are two kinds of fear that we see in the passage, right? There's the, there is the, the fear of terror and dread. We fear men who have power to kill us and, and the power, power to make our lives miserable, power to end our careers, right? I, I was actually once told in a church that I needed to start thinking about who paid my salary. It was an attempt to get me to fear in this way, right? It was an attempt at intimidation. We fear people when they have power over us. And, and, and there is what has been called as well, though. There's the fear of terror and dread, but then there's also the fear of a son. Uh, the all-filled respect and honor and worship of God. The fear of the Lord. It's not the fear of what might happen if I cross the line, but it's worship and awe of who God is. And this passage really includes both kinds of fear. First, Uh, we see, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus says, you don't have to fear men. You don't have to be in terror, in dread of them. They may have power over you. They may be able to make your life miserable. They may be able to destroy your career. They may be able to put a blemish on your GPA. They may be able to kill you. But you don't need to fear them. Why not? Well, Jesus goes on and he says, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, many people think that Jesus is saying, fear God because he can do more damage to you than man can, right? Man can only hurt your body. God, he can hurt your body and your soul, so watch out, right? He's the one that you should fear. But look at what Jesus says next. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows, Jesus points to the Father's loving sovereignty. Jesus says the Father values you. Jesus is is saying no harm will come to you apart from your Father allowing it to happen. Your Father values you. You, you, Your Father who values you is in control, even of the sparrows, even of every hair that's on your head. Then what does Jesus mean then by fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell? He says, fear him, and then he says, your father values you a great deal. What does he mean? Well, there's this interesting passage in Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 12 says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And then God goes on to say that he himself would take up their cause and put down their oppressor. See, we fear God because though they can destroy our bodies, God can destroy our enemies, body and soul. See, the fearful part is not for us, it's for our enemies. We are of more value than many sparrows to our Father. 
He will defend us. That's what Jesus is saying. Though our enemies have strength, our God has more. Fear him. Worship him. Stand in awe of him. He is going to care for you. So we don't need to fear because we can rely on the Spirit who speaks through us. We can trust our Father who values us and will take care of us. And finally, we don't need to fear because we can remember Jesus' work for us. Jesus says in this passage in verses 24 and 25, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says that we are going to be like him. Okay, well, what was he like? What happened to him? Well, they did a lot more than call Jesus Beelzebul. Everything Jesus warns would happen to his disciples in this passage first happened to him. He was brought before rulers, the Sanhedrin, the the high priest, Pontius Pilate, even Gentile kings, King Herod. Jesus was rejected by his family members in life, rejected by his brothers, his fellow Israelites. Judas, one of his own disciples, betrayed him. Jesus was hated, but he took up his cross. And he was put to death. And yet the deeper truth is, in bearing our sins, Jesus was rejected by his own father. And in so doing, he paid the penalty for our sin. When Jesus says he's going to divide father from son, he knows what that means. Because he goes to the cross to be rejected by his father for us. But of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. He suffered and he rose. He he conquered death. Jesus' enemies could kill him. They did kill him, but they couldn't keep him dead because the Father is the one who has the power over life and death. And so Jesus rose to new life, even a new kind of life in the resurrection. And so Jesus is now raised and ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? Well, the Bible tells us what he's doing there. The Bible says that he's praying for us. That's what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. He is praying for his people. He's interceding for us. In verse 32, uh, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Right? Jesus died and then he rose and then he ascended. And what is he doing? He's acknowledging us before the Father. He's saying to the Father, that one's mine. Father, do good to him. Father, care for her. Take care of this one, Father. She belongs to me. See, Jesus died and he rose and now he is acknowledging us before his Father. Now that may be hidden now, right? We don't see that at the moment. You don't see your status in heaven. It isn't written on your forehead, but everything that is hidden will be revealed, Jesus says. The world may mock and scorn, but Jesus acknowledges you now. And on the last day, the whole world will see it. You belong to Jesus. You are a part of his bride, his people. Now, I have one last point, and it'll be very quick. If you want to live without fear, if you want to move out into God's mission, you need to remember that you are being conformed to Christ's image. See, we have a crucified and risen Savior. He was persecuted, he was mocked, he was belittled, he was beaten, he was killed. And Jesus says, a servant is not above his master In the world, you will have troubles. 
Sometimes that means rejection, sometimes persecution, sometimes death. It may come to that one day for any one of us. And of course, there are many brothers and sisters right now who face that kind of persecution every day. They literally give up their physical lives. But Paul tells us, if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his as well. See, our our suffering for Jesus' name in this life is a sign that we belong to him. Take comfort in that. Rejoice in that, that that if we share in his death, if we share in being mocked or beaten or, or ridiculed for his sake, if we share in that, we share in his resurrection as well. In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as our, as our crucified and risen Savior. And we know that, that in this life, we are bound to face many difficulties, some large, some small. Father, we, we again, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face death daily, who face persecution physically, who, who, are, who are beaten and dragged out of their homes and put in jail, who are given up for dead or put to death. Father, we pray that you would be with them, that you would give them words to say, to proclaim Jesus even even in those moments. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through that. We know as as horrible as it is, as as terrible as it is, someone once said that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. Father, you use persecution in your own design, in your own wisdom, actually to expand your kingdom that the name of Christ would go forth throughout the world. Father, we pray that you would do that, that you would use that you would use persecution, that no one would be beaten or killed for Jesus' sake without that being used by you to bring others to know your grace and your goodness. And Father, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to be ready, to be ready for persecution large and small, to be ready to proclaim the name of Jesus without fear to be ready knowing that your spirit is with us and will speak through us, to be ready knowing that you are our father and you're gonna care for us and you love us, to be ready knowing that that, that Jesus died and rose and we are being conformed to his image. And we will face suffering and difficulty and trials, but we will rise one day with him. Father, Father, remind our hearts of that, assure our hearts of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.